hear the coffee. Episode 27 coincides with a resup, and I can put away the brown powder and go back to drinking coffee. Son of a physician, William Spears Bruce was preparing for matriculation at entry to the University College of London to follow his father in medicine, when in 1887 he attended six weeks of short courses in natural history at the newly established Scottish Marine Station, Granton. While studying there, he met Hugh Robert Mill, already mentioned in several episodes as librarian to the Royal Geographical Society through the 1890s, and developed an enthusiasm for marine science that saw him shift his medical studies to Edinburgh University, leaving him better positioned to remain in touch with his biology mentors, and able to help John Murray study and curate material brought back from the Challenger expedition. Mill recommended Bruce for a scientific position in the 1892-1893 Dundee Whaling Expedition, covered in episode 21. This ended his medical studies, but Bruce was far more interested in oceanography by that point, and went gladly, though as noted in episode 21, the scant opportunities afforded for scientific sampling in the attempt to make the Dundee Whaling Expedition pay frustrated the scientific contingent. On his return from the south, Bruce put forward proposals for further work in the Antarctic, but received no support from the RGS, so he took up a role at the weather station on Ben Nevis, the highest peak in the British Isles, where he learnt the meteorological recording methods he would later employ in Arctic and Antarctic ventures. He left that post to join the third year of Frederick Jackson's Arctic expedition in Franz Josef Land in 1896, again on Mill's recommendation. He arrived at the expedition base on Norfolk Island, just as Fritjof Nansen and Hjalmar Johansson arrived after their 15 months alone above the Arctic Circle. Meeting Nansen afforded Bruce a sound source of advice in his future projects, as Nansen always gave freely of his knowledge and experience. In 1898, Bruce accepted a position aboard the private yacht Blencathra on a hunting expedition in the Arctic under Scottish textiles magnate Major Andrew Coates, again on the recommendation of Hugh Robert Mill, whose RGS duties precluded his filling the berth. While planned as a pleasure cruise, Bruce applied himself diligently to oceanography, filling his time with observations and sampling throughout the Barents Sea. The yacht tried to reach Spitsbergen, but, blocked by ice, returned to Tromsø, Norway, where Bruce met Prince Albert I of Monaco, aboard his purpose-built hydrographic survey vessel, the Princess Alice. Prince Albert, also a dedicated oceanographer, took Bruce aboard as a scientific assistant, later becoming his head scientist for two hydrographic survey voyages to Spitsbergen, where Bruce discovered evidence of coal and oil. Bruce later accepted a position aboard the Antarctic under Henrik Bull, see episode 22, but failed to reach Melbourne in time, his berth going to Karsten Borkrevink. Markham and Murray drew on Bruce's experiences to help fire up a passion for Antarctic exploration among the RGS membership, but when Sir Clements began assembling the funds and people for his, first person, possessive by proxy, expedition in 1899, Bruce's application to join as a scientist somehow fell off Sir Clements' desk. After a month of ignoring the Scot, Sir Clements proposed a meeting with Bruce, but that meeting never happened. 
a terse one-line response, was all Bruce received from Markham in a year, advising he apply for the role of assistant scientist. Quite a patronising snub to someone with Bruce's experiences, and one likely calculated to cause offence and thereby exclude the Scot for fear of his upstaging Markham's favoured few. Markham's golden child, Robert Falcon Scott, recognising his own inexperience in polar work, sought Bruce as an expedition member, independent of Markham's nonsense. But Bruce felt no interest in the mooted attempt on the pole, seeing it as a distraction from the science he wanted to spend his energy on. Bruce decided to lead his own expedition with science as its first priority, national glory for Scotland as its secondary goal, and sticking it to Sir Clements Markham as its tertiary reason, or at least that's how I like to read it. Markham certainly saw the endeavour as a funding threat. Even as Markham tried to play Bruce for a chump, the thoroughly non-chump Bruce accrued financial backing from his fellow Scots. Markham saw the £11,000 arising from the textile industry fortune of Bruce's former Arctic companion, Andrew Coates, and his brother James, and other Scottish contributions, as rightfully his own. But Bruce pointed out, in pointed words, that much of the funding would not have gone out to any endeavour other than a Scottish project. I take this at face value. Bruce was fiercely proud of Scotland, and drew heavily on national identity in garnering support. He was happy to collaborate, but the affronts afforded his efforts by the RGS actually worked in his favour, drawing a, well fuck them then, sentiment among the Scottish populace. At the point Bruce applied for the preferred role of scientific assistant, he also let his patronising would-be patron, Markham, know that the Scottish Antarctic expedition was almost fully funded and could therefore offer a second ship with which to coordinate efforts in the south with any RGS project that got off the ground. I don't know what Booyah sounds like when spoken with an Edinburgh accent, but I'm sure it's impressive. Markham disingenuously argued that as Bruce was the likely candidate for the scientific assistant position under Scott, his newly announced plan constituted an unconscionable break of faith. Markham didn't mind breaking faith with anyone or throwing former friends under the omnibus if it served his interests, but the tone of hurt fawn mewling his correspondence takes on when he felt hard done by is hard to stomach. Bruce informed Markham that the Scottish expedition would concentrate on the Waddell Quadrant and apply all the latest oceanographic, geographic, botanical and zoological equipment and methods to the study of that region. Markham glowed bright red and fumed that he would never forgive Bruce for his impertinence and meddlesomeness. Well, the second bit's verifiable. Scottish scientists and the Royal Scottish Geographical Society rallied behind the project. Bruce added national to the expedition name to garner further patriotic support and, I really fervently hope, to further stick it to Sir Clements. Heckler, the standard bark-rigged Norwegian whaler with auxiliary stick... Ah, do you hear that? That's why I've got coffee again. <clears throat> the Heckler, the standard bark-rigged Norwegian whaler with auxiliary steam engine, was purchased and taken to a Scottish yard, where she was refitted, fitted with labs, and renamed Scotia. The 400-ton ship, crewed by 27 crew and scienced by 7 scientists, was captained by Captain Thomas Robertson, whom Bruce sailed under during the Dundee whaling expedition. 
Bruce proposed a three-year program. A shore party based as close as possible to the pole would conduct the usual meteorological, magnetic and gravitational measurement series and survey as much geography as accessible, while the ship would conduct oceanographic surveys to the south of South America and make summer resupply visits to the shore party. Sir John Murray hosted a farewell dinner for the expedition in October 1902, nailing his St. Andrews cross to the mast, figuratively speaking, and the Scotia sailed from Troon on the 2nd of November, with a literal St. Andrews cross flying with the Scottish Royal Standard from the masthead, and a local paper bemoaning the singing of the profane Old Lang Syne on the Sabbath as the ship let slip. Dr Harvey Peary, the expedition medical officer, recorded in his diary, November 9th, sick and miserable. November 10th, very sick and very miserable. Anyone reading my voyage journals could accuse me of plagiarism, but it's just coincidence playing with loaded dice again. The Scotia reached the Falkland Islands on the 6th of January and spent three weeks there. The Scottish National Antarctic Expedition visited the South Orkneys in February 1903 and made the first visit to Saddle Island since de Mont de Vere's landing in 1838. From there it was east to the South Sandwich Islands, then south into the eastern reaches of the Weddell Sea. The Scotia worked through loose pack to 70 degrees 25 minutes south at 17 degrees 17 minutes west, but dense pack ice blocked further progress. On the 22nd of February, with the temperature at minus 10 degrees Celsius and new ice forming around them, Bruce took the expedition north, determined not to become beset by ice and lose all scope for oceanography through the winter. Robertson sailed the Scotia to Lorrie Bay on the north shore of Lorrie Island at 60 degrees south in the South Orkneys. There the crew built a stone hut they named Ormond House. It took six months to complete the building, but its five-foot-thick walls ensured against the vagaries of the local weather, and Ormond House still stands. The wooden, nail-free magnetician's hut, de rigueur for anyone taking their magnetic reading seriously at that time, did not last as long, but served throughout the Scottish presence in the south. In the especially cold winter of 1903, the Scotia became icebound in its embayment. No one found this more surprising than Bruce, but his disappointment at the sudden inability to oceanograph the winter months away didn't prevent him sampling as much as possible through holes cut in the sea ice. The crew banked snow around the ship to insulate it against the worst of the weather, and began preparing for dog sledge journeys. The ship's engineer died of heart problems during this period, and the crew buried him ashore. The crew killed penguins for scientific study and for the pot, but Bruce noticed an unseemly bloodlust coming over his team. I'm not going to try a Scottish accent. You haven't done anything to deserve that. Turn away for a moment, and they'll batter into pulp the nearest living thing they can lay hands on. No bird was safe, and stern injunctions against pointless slaughter entered the standing orders, making explicit the number of animals to be collected and the manner in which they should be killed to best preserve the skins, organs and meat, this being strangulation in the case of penguins. The crew found recreational possibilities in improving their skiing technique on the nearby glacier and took still and moving pictures when the Lorry Island fog lifted enough for something interesting to show in the exposures. A series of survey parties, 
kicking off with an eight-day sledging journey to Delta Island in July, resulted in further soundings, surveying, meteorological observations and biological samples. Dr Piri describes a typical day of survey work. Soon after nine we sallied forth with the sounding apparatus, measuring line and prismatic compass for surveying. About 30 soundings we found as much as could be done in a day. Each involved cutting a hole in the ice at least 30 inches thick, often rather more. Lunch was taken out on the floe. This consisted of biscuit, butter, which was quite hard and crumbly, cheese, a stick of chocolate and a pipe. Dusk at six found us once more back in camp. The two lucky ones snugged down in their sacks while the third cooked dinner. This meal consisted of more biscuit, thawed meat and a large mug of tea. How the thought of that hot tea kept us going all day. The recollection of it is the strongest I have of our camping out experiences. How both hands having clasped the cup so as not to lose any heat, the warm glow gradually spread and spread, till at last even the toes felt warm ere the cup was drained. Truly, it was the cup that cheered. The day's work was then plotted out by the light of a guttering candle, and a pipe and a chat passed away an hour ere we wooed the drowsy god. The moisture from our breaths and from the cooking stove, of course, condensed as snow on the walls of the tent, and a considerable amount found its way into our sacks. This gave us a good deal of thawing to do in bed. But notwithstanding that, and the howling wind which sometimes threatened to carry the whole tent away, we slept the sleep of the just. November saw gunpowder and saws employed in an attempt to free the Scotia, but the six metre thick ice only yielded when strong winds came into the equation. The Scotia headed to the Falklands, leaving a party of six, headed by meteorologist Robert Mossman at Ormond House, to carry on with the established observation series. From the Falklands, the Scotia sailed on to Buenos Aires for dry dock repairs and to allow Bruce to seek further funding in correspondence with his Scottish backers, arriving there on Christmas Day. The Coates brothers stressed a desire for the expedition to reach a high southern latitude, but Bruce felt unwilling to sacrifice his oceanographic goals simply to best previous efforts by a degree or a mile. James Coates came through with a further £6,500, and Argentine companies provided free coal and stores. Bruce offered to donate Ormond House to the British government, but no agency showed interest. Instead, Bruce arranged for the Argentine government to take over the site as a permanent meteorological station, with Mossman staying on for a year on Argentine pay. When the Scotia arrived with three Argentinians slated to replace Mossman's existing support crew, the cook volunteered to stay on too, so the Scotia departed south once more, leaving five people at Ormond operating under a newly raised Argentine flag. A severe storm almost destroyed Ormond House in its first year of Argentine operation. All hands sheltered in the wooden magnetic measurement hut until the hurricane force winds died down, at which they found the southeastern footings of their stone hut undermined by waves. The damage repaired, the team settled into their routines once more, their stay progressing smoothly until their replacements arrived the following summer aboard the corvette Uruguay, which received mention in episode 26 for rescuing Nordenskjold's Swedish expedition from Snow Hill and Paulette Islands the previous summer. Ormond House is still occupied. 
now known as Orcadis Station. It's the longest continually run Antarctic base. I bet the Brits wish they didn't ignore Bruce's offer to give them the hut, what with overlapping Antarctic territorial claims by Britain and Argentina arising in the decades that followed. The Scotia sailed in ice-free conditions to 72 degrees south, the sounding machine recording depths only half of those expected, based on previous soundings by the crews of the Erebus and Terror. Shallowing water can indicate that land lies nearby, and Bruce's depth records constitute the first evidence in support of land backing the Weddell Sea. At 74 degrees south, they sighted an ice barrier, leading Dr Peary to quote Coleridge, Ice mast high went floating by. The barrier offered additional evidence pointing to continentality, but Bruce, being the conservative scientist, recognised that the Waddell Ice Barrier could also be fed by glaciers in Enderby Land, which left the question of whether Antarctica comprised a single continental landmass or an archipelago of islands up in the air, or at least buried under the ice. Bruce's work placed the name Coates Land on the area and shifted the nominal position of possible land 100 miles further north than the soundings made under James Clark Ross led Sir John Murray to speculate. Geologising and biological um, sampling took place wherever the Scotia could afford opportunities, and it's from one of these opportunities that the striking images of Gilbert Kerr, lab assistant to Dr Harvey Peary, playing the bagpipes to a penguin, arose. The penguin appears unimpressed by the alleged music, and in several of the photographs of the encounter, the tether preventing the unfortunate animal from making its escape is clearly visible. The penguin was killed, though whether this was for science, dinner or mercy's sake is not recorded. A decade and a bit later, aboard the Endurance, under Ernest Shackleton, photographer Frank Hurley recorded another bagpipe versus penguin encounter. Some guests dropped in for a visit after dinner. A bevy of a daily penguins came from a neighbouring lead and waddled over to contemplate the ship. Hussey entertained them from the poop with his banjo. The birds seemed to enjoy the music and occasionally expressed their feelings with croaks of Clark! Clark! Clark was our biologist and it amused us to hear the penguins apparently calling him. Clark, a patriotic Scot, endeavoured to entertain our little visitors with the melodies of his native highlands, but his amiable intentions failed, for when the penguins heard the bagpipes, they fled in terror and plunged back into the sea. A careful reading of the Antarctic Treaty doesn't reveal any explicit position regarding the use of bagpipes against local wildlife, but I'm pretty sure people have behaved more humanely on this front in increasingly enlightened times. The Scotia made a 150-mile transit to the southwest along the ice barrier, heading north on the 12th of March, 1904, but the ice didn't make it easy for them to leave. A blizzard saw the ship pinched and nearly crushed by pack ice. The crew employed explosives and ran to and fro across the deck to try and rock the hull out of trouble, but the ice held, once more only releasing its grip under a change of wind. Live emperor penguins carried north aboard the Scotia, sickened and starved because no one thought to source some fresh fish to feed them. Soundings taken over the Ross Deep at 68 degrees south, 12 degrees 49 minutes west, previously recorded as 4,000 fathoms deep, 
returned a depth of 2,660 fathoms. Something was amiss with the depth records made by the Erebus and Terra. The Scottish National Antarctic Expedition and the resulting Argentine presence on Lorry Island renewed calls within Argentina for a declaration of sovereignty over the region of Antarctica to the south of South America. The British office in Buenos Aires alerted London about the word on the street. Based on an Admiralty report noting the South Orkneys as desolate and colonial office indifference, the Foreign Office advised the Buenos Aires British office to raise no objection to the Argentinian use of Ormond House. Britain made no other official statement, perhaps anticipating that broader territorial claims would fall by the wayside as all previous efforts did. The Argentine government designated one of the Lorry Bay Party a postmaster, and Ormond House became a post office. The first of many Antarctic bases to perform the minor but still official government duty of franking stamps on outgoing letters, and thereby conferring official government officialness on the presence in the south. The Scotia arrived at Kingston Harbour, Northern Ireland, on the 15th of July 1904, where the Coates brothers greeted them from their massive yacht and much celebrating ensued. The Scottish National Antarctic Expedition provided the first scientific observations of penguin rookeries through a full breeding season and returned more specimens of undescribed Antarctic marine species than any previous voyage, a collection that remained unequalled for several decades. Markham described the Scottish expedition as mischievous rivalry, which is a bit rich coming from his cake-hole, and he never forgave Bruce which must have broken his poor wee Scottish heart. In spite of a reputation for being as prickly as a Scottish thistle itself, William Spears Bruce treated people who didn't try to chump him generously, sharing his experience and equipment with later expeditions. He planned a continental crossing from one side of Antarctica to the other, but couldn't raise enthusiasm or funds. Bruce established the Scottish Oceanographical Laboratory to house and work up the material brought home by the Scottish National Antarctic Expedition. In 1906, Bruce returned to the Spitsbergen Archipelago with Prince Albert I of Monaco to follow up on his discoveries of coal and oil. Spitsbergen was considered terra nullius at the time, and Bruce formed a syndicate to stake a claim and begin extractions. The full prospecting expedition chartered by the Scottish Spitsbergen Syndicate returned disappointing results, but Bruce didn't give up on the project. The outbreak of the First World War precluded his proposed return to the area to follow up the prospecting with investigations at additional sites. As late as 1920, he held hopes of turning a sizeable profit from his discoveries there, travelling to Spitsbergen in a scientific advisory role as his health began to fail. A proposal to develop the Scottish Oceanographical Laboratory into a national institute was also shelved by the First World War. Post-war funding difficulties and Bruce's health issues forced him to close the lab and divvy up the biological material and books between Scottish museums and universities. On returning from Spitsbergen in 1820, Bruce's declining health forced him into the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. William Spears Bruce died in October 1921. His cremains were scattered into the Southern Ocean at South Georgia. The Scottish National Antarctic Expedition, 
even with the Scotia iced into Lorry Bay for a winter, returned more scientific information than many contemporary expeditions. By focusing on science instead of the prestige associated with being first to get to X, the Scottish National Antarctic Expedition stands as one of the most efficient scientific projects of its kind. Alienated by the Royal Geographical Society, William Spears Bruce was left out of, or edited to the point of obscurity in, many historical narratives. With no great dramas or trials of human endurance, his tale lacks the romance that fires audience imaginations a la Shackleton and Scott. As with his countryman John Ray, Bruce is obscured by competence and resentment. Errata On reaching 25 episodes, I started reviewing the series, giving episodes their first listen since I released them. While pleased with the series overall, I noticed a number of errors. In episode 24, I recounted the naming of George Murray Glacier. This should have been noted as the John Murray Glacier, named for the oceanographer whose advocacy for Antarctic exploration helped Garner Borkrevink his funding from Nunes, not after George Murray, the Scottish biologist who published The Antarctic Manual in 1901. In episode 15, I experienced a visit by Reverend Spooner, who encouraged me to switch up whole words instead of the usual first letters, and I name-checked Apsley Cherry Garrard as Cherry Apsley Garrard, and went on to make the same mistake with Edward Adrian Wilson, giving his name as Adrian Wilson. Thankfully, Reverend Spooner's visit did not coincide with that of Father Mucker. Many more errata exist, and I'll address them as I recognise them or people bring them to my attention. This episode, I'd like to give thanks to Sam, whose goodwill and companionship, though mostly in digital form, has meant a lot to me in the five years constituting our acquaintance. The recent death of mutual friend Colin Klein reminded me to get on with recognising my living friends in my output, so I raise my tin mug to toast the electrical bicycle genius of Ballarat. I normally don't like to break whatever the linear oral string equivalent of the fourth wall is, but I've got to this episode in order to thank Aroborus New Zealand for their permission to use their excellent recording of a Bell UH-1 helicopter starting up and flying away. Take care and appreciate your coffee. Mm-hmm.